Amen. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you and be back up uh, front here and sharing God's word with you once again. Isaiah chapter 25, and if you don't have a Bible with you, Bible's in the seatbacks in front of you, and you can take one of those out, and the ones in the seatbacks in front of you are the same version that I'm using, so it's pretty easy to follow along. And if you don't have a Bible, take one of those, and uh, it is our gift to you, so we'd love for you to have it. It's a pretty nice little compact Bible, and we would love for you to take that with you if you need a Bible or have someone that you know that needs a Bible. Book of Isaiah, we've been in this now for a little while, and Isaiah, if as we've journeyed through this, you would pretty well be, I'd say you would be very safe to say that he was a visionary prophet. And what I mean by that is that he paints pictures that you can really see in your head when you read what's going on. You can just kind of close your eyes and any section of Isaiah that you come on to and you read and those visions just come to your mind and the vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah 25, really a kind of a a shift in the book, um, is one of those visions that's pretty easy to see. I think of it as a, or in this case, maybe a vision, and I know this is weird, so hang with me, a vision that's easy to smell. You're like, vision, smell? I don't get that. Just, just hang with me for a second. There's the fragrance of food that is pretty enamoring to people. When you drive by an In-N-Out burger in Southern California, you know you're driving by an In-N-Out burger, right? Amen? Yeah. You just just know, I am buying In-N-Out burger. When you have that huge feast going and and some sort of party that may be happening at a house, uh, you, you just walk in and you smell all of the different foods going, and you're like, I am in the right place. Matter of fact, when I... When I came here this morning, and I know what I'm going to do now is, is going to make everyone after service wandering around the parking lot trying to smell this, but someone already had their, their smoker going this morning back behind us, and I was like, I'm going to be there. You guys can do, no, and, um, but you just smell it. And you smell that, that fragrance, and you smell the fragrance just coming out of this chapter. It's a fragrance of a feast, the feast of God that is going to be spread for us in heaven. And only by faith are we going to catch the full aroma of that feast and see, and this is where the vision comes in, and see that feast and the invitation to sit at the banquet table of God. We, we have this invitation to sit at the banquet table of God, God in the kingdom of heaven, and feast with him forever and ever. It's a, it's a feast to be thrilled about. It's a moment to be thrilled about. So you have faith in Christ. You smell the aroma coming from the text, from the banquet today, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to be excited for what we're about to smell and eat and consume in God's word. 
I want you to have the faith to, to smell the fragrance of the banquet. And I want you to see that this is a chapter all of a sudden, a chapter of joy, a chapter of celebration. Now, there's a lot of judgment in the chapters before this, right? We, we journeyed through a group of oracles of, I am against you in this way, I'm against you in this way, and this nation's going to go up in flames. All of these different judgments. And last week in 24, chapter 24, the judgment on the whole world the destruction of all the earth. But here in chapter 25, oh, you have hit us on a good Sunday. This is a celebration chapter. I, I think ultimately of the resurrection victory of Jesus here. And we celebrate that really every week in communion, amen? It's one of the reasons that we take communion every Sunday is to remember what is the point of all of this? What is the point of our teaching? What is the point of our singing? What is the point of the, the prayers of, of saying that God is sovereign? The point is, is that Jesus came, died, rose again, took on our sins, gives us life. Ultimately, this is a celebration. And that is what we see here, starting with the picture of a ruined city in verses 1 through 3. I, O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap. And you're like, hold it. Wouldn't you think that it would jump into something different than a ruined city? A fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. So, Isaiah chapter 13 through 39 show the sovereign power of God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob all over the earth. He rules over all nations, rules over Babylon all the way to Assyria. Uh, Isaiah 13, God's sovereignty over Babylon is, is also seen in chapter 37, chapter 38, chapter 39. His victory over Syria between uh, lots and lots of smaller nations, oracles against them, Arabia, Syria, Damascus, Ethiopia, Egypt, all of those things. What, what's common in all of them? God oversees, God rules over all. Over all the nations, small and mighty. Later on, in, as we walk through this together in Isaiah 40, We'll see how God sits in, in, on the throne above and circle the circle of the earth. All the nations before him are, are like grasshoppers. 
Nations will, that are, nations are just like a drop in the bucket to him. And Isaiah is building this vision of this infinite sense of a majestic God. How great is our God? How mighty is our God? How powerful is our God? And we should never lose sight of the fact that God does this, that he might be known, right? That he might be known. But what is it in verses 1 through 3 that I want you to notice? And we do this every once in a while, but I want you to notice that he does not say, we will exalt you. What does he say? I. I, I will exalt you. We should never lose sight that God does this so we may know him personally. You, me, individuals, personally, yes, as the church, yes, collectively, as his people, but personally know him as God. Individual people created in the image of God that he may have a relationship with who? You. Me. And I think that is exactly why Jesus, when you look at his miracles, when he sought to heal people, when he healed people, how did he do it? They were one-on-one events, weren't they? You go through that. They were one-on-one events. They were face-to-face events. Yes, he could have walked through the world and waved his hand, and all of the diseases of the world could have been gone in one second. Yes, he could have done that. But he went face-to-face, like the woman who was bleeding and touched the hem of his garment, he stopped and he said, okay, who touched me? You know, he knew very well who touched him. But it was the encounter of the individual one-on-one that we want to see here. He wants a relationship with you. Very, very personal. And Isaiah makes his love for God here in verse 1, what? Personal. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders. Now, can you say that? No, not literally, right the second. But can you say that the God of the Bible is your God. Down deep in your soul, can you say that? Can you speak with that kind of intensity that is in the language there that Isaiah is speaking with? It is not just, a, oh, by the way, he's my God. I'm going to worship him. That is not the intensity that's found in the scripture there. It is intense. 
He's, he's, he's enthroned above. He's, he's the one who cups his hand and scoops up the Pacific Ocean. All of it. It's that kind of thing. The weights of the mountains you know, are balanced in his hands. Dust on the scales compared to what we see. This is the great God that is my God, that is your God, that you get to talk to every day and live your life in front of Him in faith. When the psalmist David in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know me when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my coming back in. You're familiar with all my ways. And at the end of that psalm, he says, do that. Keep doing that. I want you to search me. I I want you to know me. I want you to be intimate with me, God, and know every part of me. I mean, if you you jump over to Galatians chapter 2, With Paul, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, a section of scripture that if you've been with us, you know well, because we refer to it quite a bit, but it's Paul being very personal and very one-on-one with his relationship with God as well, right? I have been crucified with Christ, not we, I. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved who? Me. Loved me and gave himself up for who? Me. This is our great God. Yes, he died for his church. But who's a part of his church? Siva. Right? Me. I am. It doesn't say he loved us and gave himself up for us. Like I said, that's true. But he loved me. He gave himself up for me. Very personal. This is very personal. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. And that's why he's praising him. That's the topic of his praise. That is why he's intensely praising God here. In his wisdom, God, before he said... Let there be light. He had worked out a detailed, sovereign plan for the entire history of the human race. It was all worked out before God said, let there be light. Tiniest detail. Down to the sparrow falling on the ground. God had it absolutely, completely, totally worked out. He had it figured out what path would be for us, what 
the ultimate end would be for his universe. And it would all be for the praise of his glory. Which is what we sang about just a few minutes ago. He worked out an ancient plan before the history of the world unfolded that we know. God was already working it out. And Isaiah says, I'm praising you. I am praising you because the plan you thought out before you said, let there be light, you're doing it now. I am living in the middle of it now. It is happening now. And I want to tell everyone in this room, it is the same today. We are living in the midst of God working out His plan for His planet, for His people, for His glory. When? Now. It's not just what we see in the Bible in the past, and it's not just what we see in the Bible in the future. It is His plan for us now. It's going on. The sovereign plan plan determined for the whole world, his hand stretched out over all the nations. The the Lord Almighty has purposed his plan. And as scripture asks, who can thwart that plan? No one, nothing. And the centerpiece of that plan is A word that starts with an S. Salvation. Salvation of his people. Salvation of the elect from every tribe, every language, and people, and nation. That's the centerpiece of God's plan. And I didn't come up with that out of thin air. A little help from Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will in order that we who are the first and hope first to open Christ uh, might be for the praise of His glory. So here, rewind Back into the time of Isaiah, here Isaiah is astonished by all of this, by marvelous things, the wonderful things that God's plan includes, the miracles that are embedded in all of it. And in this particular case, in these verses, he is celebrating the fact that God has power to turn ruthless, oppressive, tyrannical, empire-building human beings into meek, humble followers of Jesus Christ. He has the power to do that. And we see that all throughout Scripture, and we see it all throughout redemptive history. And that's marvelous, isn't it? Is that worth celebrating? Is it worth celebrating that he saved a sinner like you? It's it's worth celebrating. And that's the God that we follow. That is the God that has the power, one God, that has the power to do that. He's working it out in his perfect faithfulness, his perfect 
plan. He knows what he's doing. He is doing it in perfection. He's not swerving to the left or the right. Oh, I didn't see that coming. God doesn't do that. Back in Isaiah 14, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. And you know what that does for me? I just want you to ponder this. This is what it does for me. It gives me peace in the midst of chaos. Because I can sit there and I go, this has happened to me, this has happened in the world, this is what's going on, but who's in charge? God. Did God see this coming? Yes. Did God purpose this? Yes. Does God have a plan for the backside of this? Yes. So do I need to be afraid? No. And that's wonderful because nothing can stop God's plan. He's marvelous. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here. He is taken us through all of these oracles of destruction and reminding us, oh, there's a feast at the end of this for God's elect, for God's people. And nothing can stop that. It's a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. Former enemies of God are now his friends. In this case, Gentile nations whose bloody boots trampled the surface of the earth came down on the necks of the Jewish people. Yes, they are stripped of their pride. And what does it say? The walls come crumbling down and they're humbled and they turn to God and find salvation in Him. It's marvelous. And we need to remember Isaiah, unlike us here in Los Angeles, Isaiah lived in an agricultural world. Little dinky towns and little villages. But there were these city-states, these walled cities. And whenever anything went down that was bad, everyone ran to those walled cities for protection. But the great cities of the world will offer no protection when God says, time's up. When his wrath pours on the nations. Revelation 16, 9. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her cup of wine of fierce wrath. And so we see that in this little section of Scripture. In the first three verses. And then it goes on in verse 4. For you have been a defense for the helpless. A defense for the needy in his distress. A refuge from the storm. A, a shade from the heat. From the, the breath of the ruthless. It's like a, a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat in drought. You subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silenced. And Isaiah is painting two parallel pictures here. The storm that is, that is just beating against the city and the beating down of a burning sun in the desert. All right, we're in L.A. Which one works better for us right now? All right, somewhere else there's a storm, but we got, 
we got the sun and we got the desert and we got the drought. And at times you just sit there, where can you take refuge? Where can travelers go for refuge? God. As we have stated in our study of Deuteronomy, as we've stated in this study in Isaiah, as we've also looked in the Psalms, God is the rock. He is the rock. He is the refuge. He is the one that we build our lives on. And he will be the refuge for the believing people during what we have mentioned as the day of the Lord. And God cares for his own in times of trial and judgment. Some of you today may be in situations in your life where you go, this stinks. Or you can remember some of those days. You can look at the state of our nation and go, this stinks. You can look at the state of our world and you can go, this stinks. What future? What future is in this for any of us? But there's some wonderful reminders in Scripture of the refuge that God provides in times of trial and judgment. Noah and his family, were they protected? Yes. They were kept alive through the flood. Israel, when the acts of judgment happened on Egypt, was Israel protected? Were the Jewish people protected? Yes. Rahab, her family, when Jericho fell all around her and the walls fell down, was her family, was she protected? Yes. When Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity, was the remnant protected? Yes. Throughout the centuries of history, has God kept his church in spite of the attacks of Satan? Has he kept his church alive and kicking and sharing the gospel and people being saved? Yes. And so we also can go, you know what? I know he's going to deliver us from the day of wrath to come. God will, will see to it that this will all be according to his will. And then verse 6 happens. I'm going to have Zach read for us verses 6 through 12. And all of this is going to happen and has happened and will happen. And then this will happen. Go ahead, Zach. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. 
And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place, as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands, the unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, even to the dust. Sign me up for that feast, right? Sign me, I, I want to be there for that feast. And for the Old Testament person, a feast was a picture of really the kingdom age when the Messiah would reign and all of the nations of the world would gather underneath his rule. Israel would, would enter into its glory. The Gentiles would come to, to Zion to worship, to worship the one true God, to worship the Lord. Jesus used the image of the feast in Matthew Eight, and in Luke 13, the people knew he was speaking about the promised kingdom. You see, what's interesting is the food, the food that we eat now sustains life, right? In theory, we need food to sustain life. But at this feast, death itself is conquered. So the food isn't about that. Because we have to remember all suffering ends, as it says here. Now, we live every single day with the reality of suffering. I woke up this morning, don't know what I did last night while sleeping, but whatever I did, I pinched some sort of nerve, and I was like, oh, that hurts. Right? You have those moments. There's just that pain and suffering, those aches and pains and, and things like that. You have the fear of death for many. Now, many of you in here would probably say to me, Scott, I'm not afraid of death. Awesome. I'm glad you're not. But the burdens of tears for suffering that we see around us and people that we love. You know, think about those moments where, you know, someone that you love dearly is just feeling as sick as possible. You ache. You, you feel terrible for them. We know the comfort of God overshadows all of this. And a lot of these things are harsh that we go through, unexplainable facts of human existence. Kind of, well, not kind of, they're inevitable because we're human. But God anticipates the day when he will destroy the cover of suffering, as we see there. We'll lift the veil of death that spread over all nations. 
He will swallow up death forever, wipe away tears from all faces. The funeral turns into a wedding. Verse 8 that I was referring there to was quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians, John and Revelation 7, Revelation 21. It's an amazing picture. They'll, the veil will be removed and you'll see God. See your Messiah. And you will sing the song of Isaiah 25, 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I'm looking forward to singing that song. Now what's interesting here is that you flip into verses 10 through 12, and all of a sudden you go back as a reminder to, oh, here's this wonderful feast, and now the humiliation of Moab. And Isaiah probably selects Moab as an example of how God will humble all of Israel's enemies. But the image here is pretty graphic, everyone. They're going to, compared to straw, trampled so deeply into manure that they have to swim through the manure to get out? Ugh. Ugh. And then God's people are enjoying a feast of all good things. And those that are not God's people are trying to escape from the junk of animals. God will bring down the prideful. We've got to remember that. All of these oracles said that all the time. What's going to happen to the proud? What's going to happen to the people that place themselves above God? They're going to get thumped. God saves. God humbles. So what are the applications of this this morning as we bring this all down to four thoughts I had? First and foremost, everyone, come to the banquet. Come to the banquet. Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he set out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, selling, tell, tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted live, livestock, and, and are all butchered, and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. 
I mean, the message was going out. The, the king's messengers are on the road. You can picture it right now. They're out there. They're telling everyone in the world, hey, come to the king's feast, the wedding feast. His son has come. The king has prepared the banquet. Come to the banquet. But what happens in that parable? They paid no attention. They went off. Come to the banquet. Don't be like these people. Come to Christ. Don't don't leave here today not knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't, Don't leave here today not knowing if you're going to sit at that table. Accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Believe in Him. Say, say to Him, Lord, save me. Your, your, your shed blood was for a sinner like me. You rose from the dead. I believe in what you have done for me. I believe in you. I place myself underneath your sovereign rule. Save me. Come to the banquet. And isn't it frustrating, if you're a Christian right now, isn't it frustrating how, pe- how many people you know that just won't come to the banquet? Like, oh, come to the banquet. It's going to be awesome. It is awesome. So come to the banquet. Second, marvel at the triumph of Jesus Christ over death. We all struggle. We all have sorrows. We all have pain. We all have misery. We all have sadness. But go to the empty tomb and look in it again. And you know what? It's still empty. Go to the empty tomb, look in it again, and feast on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And maybe just, maybe today you have to go, you know what, Lord, maybe I can have a few extra morsels fall from the feast. Leave here today with heaven's joy. Pray the prayer of, Lord, would you give me a foretaste of your mercy and grace today? Come to the banquet. Celebrate. Go home rejoicing today. Go home rejoicing. Rejoicing in Jesus. I'm looking out here, and I just want to make sure that there's no long faces. Go home rejoicing No long faces. If you are a Christian, you should be rejoicing, right? What does Paul say to us? Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say again, rejoice. There's a reason Paul said that. It's like, come on, people. Marvel at the triumph of Jesus Christ over death. It's our hope. 
It's our salvation. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Number three, praise God for his ability to convert the most ruthless oppressors to faith. We need to be praying for people that do not know Jesus yet. We live in a really perilous time in our nation. When people are really voting God out of our culture. They're kind of booing God. Boo God. Boo God. And it's sickening. But don't just get angry about it. It's easy to get angry about. There's a righteous anger that's right to men, right? We can get angry about it. We're not sinning. This is terrible. What people are saying is terrible. What people are doing is terrible. That go against God. All of those things. Should we say that? Should we let them know that? Yes. But don't just get angry. Pray for people. Pray for people who are doing those kinds of things. Pray that God would convert them. And this one's tough. There are some people in your life that you probably don't want at the banquet table with God. Right? And there may be some leaders in our nation that you're like, I don't want that person anywhere near God's banquet table. And the truth is, is they won't be if they don't accept Christ as Lord and Savior, so you don't have anything to worry about that. But wouldn't it be amazing if all of a sudden they accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and everything changed? And you would sit there and you'd go, that's a God thing. Pray for our president. Pray for our state leaders. Pray for our county leaders. Anyway, all of them need prayer. And you know what we need to be praying? Pray that God will save them. And that they would sit at the banquet table with Jesus. We want everyone at the banquet table with Jesus. We know not everyone's going to be there, but what should be our prayer? I love what Spurgeon would say. He's like, I know that there's God's elect. And I'm paraphrasing this, but it's better paraphrased. I know there is God's elect. But as the people of God, we are to do everything possible, including holding onto their legs and arms and everything before they dive off the pit. Because we don't know. Who's going to be saved? As Spurgeon also said, I don't get to run around behind people and lift up their coat and see that it says Christian. I don't know what's going to happen. So I pray for all. I preach to all. I share truth to all. And it's all for God's glory and all is in God's hands. So praise God for his ability to convert the most ruthless oppressors to faith. And obviously, we have one of many in Scripture that is considered by most 
the most amazing apostle out of time that was exactly that. That his whole goal was to kill Christians. But who's going to be seated at the banquet table with us? Paul. Number four, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord in perfect faithfulness. He's going to complete the ancient plan. And I know that's tough. If you go to the end of the book of Revelation, what does John say? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that was a few years ago. We want instant gratification, don't we? I, I get upset when it takes 35 seconds to reheat my coffee. <laughs> I know, it's, it's something I've got to live with. We settle for Satan's temptations, though, so many times because we want instant gratification. As I was reading this week, one, one commentator said this, when looking at this section of scripture, and I was like, man, that, that's right on. Don't settle for fast food when you can feast at God's banquet. Don't settle for fast food when you can feast at God's banquet. And with that, there's a lot of waiting, isn't there? If you've been around for a while, there's some waiting. We're all waiting. We do a lot of waiting we drive the freeways of L.A. where we wait even more. You see, we're not freed from death. That's the final straw. We're not freed from that. We're, we're, we go to a lot of funerals, don't we, in our days. We go through suffering in our days. But we need to wait on Him in the midst of that rejoice in the resurrection story and the resurrection victory because it's all according to his timing. Let's rejoice in the victory of the resurrection while we wait for him to return. The Christian community is a community of the cross for it has been brought into being by the cross. And the focus of its worship is the Lamb once slain, now glorified. So the community of the cross is a community of celebration, ceaselessly offering to God through Christ the sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving. The Christian life, as this commentator says, this Christian life that we live is an unending festival. And the festival we keep, now that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us, is a joyful celebration of his sacrifice together with a spiritual feasting upon it. And that is why we take communion today. We feast on what Christ has done for us while we wait. Wait. 